0: Good morning church family. Hope you had not already put all your winter clothes up in the attic and didn't plant too many spring flowers. Uh, No, it's good to see you here this morning church family. Glad you're back. Last week we started walking through the book of Daniel and as I mentioned last week when we come to the book of Daniel, Daniel forces us to, to answer the question how do we walk faithfully with Jesus when it seems like we're living in an exile in a hostile world? we should probably change, it seems like. Reality is, Scripture says, for those of us in Christ, we are living in exile. We are sojourners in this world. We are living in a world that is not our home and is not reflective of the one to whom we belong. And as we come back to Daniel today, we take a step further, not just how do we walk faithfully with Jesus, but how do we respond when the news of imminent danger arrives at our doorstep. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, if you don't have a Bible or maybe you forgot your Bible this morning, please invite you to use the Bible in the pew back in front of you. The page numbers on the screen will correspond to it. Daniel chapter 2. Now, as we come there, remember what has what has happened just prior in chapter 1. 605 BC, uh, all of Jerusalem watches as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of a pagan and foreign land, comes marching into Jerusalem. They're defenseless, powerless to stop him. And he not only comes in and and sets up his authority, Jerusalem, Judah will now be subject to Babylon. He marches straight into the house of God, to the temple, begins to take vessels from the house of God, objects that were dedicated for the holy use of worship before God, and, and proceeds to pillage those things and take them, back to Babylon to the temples of his gods like victory trophies. Not only that, but he comes to that elite and ruling class and he takes the best and the brightest of their young people and he takes them, some would say hostage, some would say captive, whatever you want to say, it takes them back to Babylon where he will enroll them in a three-year university doctoral program in all things Babylon. Babylon. And in that group, there will be four young men who find themselves all of a sudden ripped from family, ripped from the culture, the patterns of their people, who've watched what looks like to everybody looking from the outside, have watched their God lose. But as we saw last week, they recognized God's sovereign, holy hand at work, and they resolved themselves to honor His holiness. And it says at the the end of that three-year period, that God, having granted them favor to continue to walk in their convictions, that that at the end of that three-year training period, they were found to be better than all of their fellow graduates. And it's at the end of that three-year training period that we pick up. Graduation's just taken place for Daniel, and here's what it says, Daniel 2. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, just a little note here. Say, well, wait, wait, Pastor, if they were kidnapped in the first year of his reign, and they finished their three-year program, how is it his... Second year, I just want to remind you, Babylon counts different than how we count, right? Uh, When a new president comes to office, we say he's in his first year. It's not how Babylon counts. Babylon counts the first year that the rulers on the throne as the year of ascendancy. So think like zero year, and then every year after that, you start counting. So when it says second year second year by Babylon royal standards, but third year in terms of how most of us are familiar. So it's why we say Daniel's just graduated. And in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar, who's young, who's fresh into his rule, he begins to have a dream. And this dream disturbs him so deeply that he is unable to sleep. It has pierced him down to the very core of his being. It has rocked the stability of his life. So it says, then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans here, sometimes it's an ethnic term referring to those uh, original ethnic Babylonians. Here, it's, it's used in a, a religious sense. These are the master astrologers. These are the, the, uh, the priestly class of astrologers. They, they say, well, oh, king, live forever. I mean, simple. Long live the king. Okay, king, tell us. Tell us the dream to your servants. And we'll declare the interpretation. So here's what goes on. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he decides he's going to pull in the best and the brightest of his counselors, of of his political staffers. He's going to pull them in. And he does so. They come in, all these different groups. And the king says, look, I've had a dream. It's really rocked me. And and you need to interpret it. And they, like good political staffers, will long live the king, good sir. Uh, Tell us your dream. Now, here's where things are going to get interesting. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me on this is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Here's where he turns it up a notch. He says, listen, he says, understand what I'm telling you. It's firm. I'm not reconsidering it. You tell me my dream and what it means. I'm not telling you anything. Now people debate, well, why would he not tell them anything? You can wonder a number of things. Some have said perhaps many of these staffers who, who work for his father, he's suspicious of them and, and he wants to see if They really know what they're talking about. Perhaps he's just someone who realizes you could play me for a fool, so if you're really legit, then you're going to have to… If you really have supernatural power, then you'll be able to know the dream, otherwise I'm not listening. Perhaps he's worried. Perhaps there's even a fear in his mind based on the dream that those who are closest around him Could betray him. Coups were always possible, especially early in their reign. The reality is, we don't know why he held firm, but what he said is is the ultimate challenge. He said, Look, I've had a dream. I need you to tell me what it means, but I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me my dream. So these, these staffers they answered a second time and they said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants. And we will declare this interpretation. They said, no, king, you tell us, and we'll we'll give you the answers you need to know. So the king said, I know for certain you're just stalling for time. Inasmuch as you have seen for me, the command is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know the interpretation, that I may know that you declare to me its interpretation. See, here's what these men would do. They've discovered archaeologically what they call dream books. And these, these astrologers, these sorcerers, these conjurers, what they would do is they would have these books that recorded dreams from people in the past and then would try to highlight key words or key symbolisms and, would, and then would point out, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book, if you ever used one of those. Okay, go, okay, okay, well, oh, you've got this, okay, well, go turn to this page now, okay. Oh, and so they'd use kind of these formulas in this book to interpret the dream as if it was from God. And you catch, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to have anything to do with it. He goes, if you really, I, I, I have to know for sure that what you tell me is the interpretation is legit. And the only way I can know if it's legit is if it comes from the gods. The Babylonians believed that, that dreams like this were, were messages from, from the divine. So the only way I can know it is if you really do what only the divine can do. And you also tell me what the dream is. Otherwise, and y'all kind didn't mention it, but y'all caught it. Otherwise, we're going to have you tied up to a bunch of horses and rip your limbs off. And we're going to take your houses and turn it into the neighborhood garbage dump. And he says, quit stalling for time. And so this is their answer to him. And it's, it is a pivotal statement what they make. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. In an admission of unbelievable honesty, they say, King, you need to understand No one's ever asked any of us to do something like this, and what you're asking us to do, there's no one in the world. No human being could tell you what you're asking. Only the gods could, and and they don't live near us. They don't have anything to do with us. Irony being right, these men have made their careers off of saying, we speak for the gods, and this, that, and the other, and They make this stunning admission that what he asks is impossible, and because of this, the king became indignant and extremely furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So here's what happens, Nebuchadnezzar displays what he's known for, which is his intense, hostile, instantaneous wrath. He says, well, then off with not only your heads, but every one of you who's in that class, kill them all. Get rid of them all. And that included even Daniel and his three friends having just graduated from the training. And so Daniel Daniel hears about this. It says, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Ariok, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So here's the situation. Ariok shows up, and Daniel goes, wait, wait a minute. You're taking us. What's going on? What's happening? But he uses discretion and discernment, words that means he employed wise counsel and understood how to approach the right person at the right time in the right way. He says, what's going on? For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. Now, catch for a second. So he hears what's going on, and Daniel goes, Wait a second. I know the one true God. This is what's going on undoubtedly in Daniel's mind. I know the one true God. Uh, we can seek him, we can hear from him. He goes, Hang on a second. Now understand the courage of this action. Let me put it in modern day principles. Let's say tomorrow uh, that the Russian Federation all of a sudden launches an unforeseen attack and completely and totally takes over the United States of America. And tomorrow, all of you who are about 15 years old, give or take a year, you get ripped from your families in this moment, you get taken back to Moscow where you're thrown into the, the best and brightest of the universities to be completely and totally indoctrinated and brought up and to be, be counselors to Vladimir Putin, who three years from now, as you've finished this course of action, comes in and goes, I've, I've had a dream that's troubled me and, and no one can tell it we're going to kill. Here's, here's the courage of this. That's you walking in going, actually, hang on, let me go before. Let me go before the ruler. Let me go before Putin. I'll stand up and we'll get you an answer. That's what Daniel does here. So he comes back, verse 17, to the house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. He says, here's what's going on. Here's what I've stood up and said. And he came back and he told them specifically so that they might request compassion, unmerited mercy, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the, the wise men of Babylon. Here's what he does. He comes back and says, Guys, here's the situation. We've got to ask the Lord to show up, to move in his might and in his power. And so they pray. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel, rather than rushing out, I've got the solution, let's go. Daniel takes time to praise the Lord, and he says this. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epochs, who removes kings and establishes kings, who gives wisdom to wise men and understanding to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. And he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you know, you have made known what I have requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Before running off with the solution, he takes time to praise and in his prayer, you see clearly what is quickly becoming the theme of the whole passage, that there is a God in heaven who, who is sovereign over the course of history, who, who is the, re- the knower and revealer of those things which are mystery. and Who reveals these things to his people as they have need to glorify his name and take care of him. And so Daniel goes into Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went in and said, Don't destroy the wise men. Stop. Take me into the king's presence. I've got it. Then Ariok hurried, brought Daniel into the king's presence. Of course, I love this. You know, if we've got. Nebuchadnezzar who's afraid and responds in anger, if you've got the wise men who are afraid and respond in despair, you've got to have somebody who's the the shameless self-promoter. I found a man. You didn't found a man, he found you. I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make known the interpretation to the king. Just make sure you remember that, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I found him. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me this dream which I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. He, he repeats and says, hey, hey, king, this, this thing which you've inquired, you need to understand. They're right. No one can tell this to you. However, there is a God in heaven Not multiple gods, there is a God, one God, in heaven over all false gods, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This is your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on bed. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And God who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to you, King, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. It says, King, you need to understand real clear, there is a God in heaven who has made something known to you, who has revealed something about what is coming to you. And he alone is the one who can give the answer, not even me. He said, there's nothing about me that is, bring I am simply his instrument, in unbelievable humility. He says, "So before I tell you, King, you need to understand how we got here." And then he proceeds to tell him the dream. You, you O king, were looking. Behold, there was a single great statue, this giant statue. The statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. Its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay, and you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors." And the wind carried them away, so not even a trace of them was found. But the stone, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this was the dream. So now let me tell you the interpretation, O king. You are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. Can you understand, Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason you have what you have is because this God has allowed you to have it. You are the head of gold. So in this statue, you are the head of gold. You, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, Babylon, you are the head of gold. It says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That'd be the arms and chest of silver. And then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. And he describes the mixture of the, the, the iron and, and the clay make, for the feet, meaning it's something that has both strength but is unstable. And then drop down to verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is is trustworthy. Here's what he says. He says, King, you had this dream, and in this dream, there was this horrifying, extraordinary statue. It had these, these, four, these four parts head of gold, arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and in the feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And, and each one of those things represents different kingdoms that are going to arise, starting with your kingdom here at the head of gold. And we'll see this more as we get to Daniel 7. We'll go in more depth with what the prophecy is here, but those arms we know reference the empire of Persia. That bronze torso that rules over the earth would be the empire of Greece, which conquered the known world of its day. The the legs of iron would be the Roman empire who ruled with an iron fist. And it says there's going to be, though, a rock Oh, there's all sorts of implications for rocks in Scripture. There's going to be a rock cut out without hands, meaning supernatural in origin. It's cut out from the mountain of God, that place where God drills, not with any human hands. It comes and it hits these kingdoms of the world and it collapses all of them. It obliterates them, turns them into dust, and when it hits... It doesn't just hit, but it, it is a foundation stone, spreads out and covers the entire world and grows into a mountain, which in ancient times symbolized the dwelling place of God. And he says, this, this stone, this is the kingdom of God, which is coming says, this is the dream, this is the interpretation. When Nebuchadnezzar hears it, verse 46, he falls down. He gives homage to Daniel. He gave orders to present him an offering. Then the king answered. And look at this shift. The previous chapter, he's robbing the temple of God for trophies for his gods. Now look at what he says. says, surely your God is a God of all gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. Here's... He doesn't quite come to the point of saying your God is the one true God, but he acknowledges, hey, your God, the God that in our minds we plundered, actually your God is over our gods. There is this beginning to shift as he recognizes the God of Daniel has done what no one else can do. He's told him the dream and its interpretation. Now, it's a lot of verses. There are so many places to run off so many details in the story, but what's the point? Church family, here's the point of Daniel 2. There is a God, the one true God, who is the sovereign Lord over history, who alone is the knower and revealer of all mystery. He is the sovereign Lord over history. He is the revealer of all mystery. And when we understand these two truths, it moves us to respond. It moves us to act, humbly seeking His will faithfully employing his gifts, all while we confidently stand upon the hope of his kingdom. What do we mean by this? What do we mean that God is sovereign Lord of history? Let me remind, we saw this. this is going to be a theme all throughout Daniel. What do we mean by sovereign? We mean God's in control. What we don't mean is some kind of Christian fatalism. Where when we say God is in control, it means everything, every little decision, everything that happens, good or bad, is all God's puppetry, and, and choices don't matter. That's not what God's sovereignty means in Scripture. What God's sovereignty means in Scripture is that God has purposes, God has plans, and it doesn't matter how much we as humans agree with His plans or fight His plans, because He is in control, His plans win. That's what it means. It means sometimes his plans work out in conjunction with human choice. It means sometimes his plans work out in spite of human's choice. It means that as we make real and meaningful and consequential choices that he has granted us a kind of free will to make, he and his sovereignty will not fail. His plan and purpose will be fulfilled. He is the sovereign Lord of history. He's sovereign over world affairs. Do you realize Daniel in 602 BC prophesies at minimum the next 600 years of world empires? And I say at minimum because depending on how you want to take the feat, we'll get there in a couple weeks. It could be even longer than that. Do you, do you realize that? That 600 years, no one, no one in 602 BC is going, you know what, one day those Romans, man, they're going to be a power to be reckoned with. No one sees that. No one knows. You know what that's like? The equivalent of that? Realize this. That's like rewinding the clock 600 years from today, which would be 1423 prior to the printing press being invented and almost 70 years before Columbus and the European powers will sell over to America. Can you imagine a prophet rising up and going, hey, you know what? Let me tell you, in 600 years, the most powerful nation in the world will be this this place, America. Well, where's America? Well, you haven't found it yet, to your knowledge. I mean, other people have already found it. You're just behind. It's remarkable, but God is sovereign over the affairs of history. It means church family. As we live in a day where there's war in Sudan and Ukraine... When there's tension over Taiwan, when there's volatility in America, we cannot lose sight that in the midst of what looks like chaos to us, God is sovereign over history. He is moving. He is orchestrating. He is going about his purposes. And he's not just sovereign over history. This passage also shows he's sovereign in our personal lives. Daniel's not there by mistake. Daniel's there by the sovereign hand of God. Daniel, remember in the previous passage, God grants Daniel and all three of his friends great wisdom and and knowledge, but he gives only Daniel the gift to interpret dreams. Daniel's the only one in the world that we know of who could possibly step into this place. And wouldn't you know it, he's there. And in a position where he could go, hey, by the way, can I go ask the king if I can have a shot at it? And where the king who saw the stalling tactics of his charlatans of a staff, goes, oh, you want a night to seek your Lord and ask him for the dream? Great, do it. See you tomorrow, we'll see how you do. God's sovereign in the circumstances of our personal lives. Church family, you and I are not here in this day living by mistake. No matter how much we might wish it was yesterday or it was a different day or we could live in that time or this time, you and I are not here by mistake. We are here by the sovereign hand of God for such a time as this, placed in circumstances, gifted with the giftings that we have, and understand God's sovereignty includes being in danger. It includes experiencing hardship. It does not dismiss the challenges of our daily lives, whether it be challenging coworkers or bitter classmates or antagonistic family. God is sovereign, not over world affairs, but over the circumstances of our lives. And in that sovereignty, he is the revealer of all mystery. Do you realize how much we don't know? I mean, legitimately, there's not a human on the planet who can tell us what tomorrow will be. There's so much we don't know about the future. Contrary to what people want to say, there's so much we don't know scientifically We've got this new NASA telescope that can take pictures deeper into the universe than anything we've ever seen before. Uh, Thomas Butterfield and I were talking the other day about how uh, news came out that they're finding galaxies they can't explain based on their scientific understandings. They're, they're too big and too young. There's all sorts of stuff we don't know. We don't know the motives of each other's hearts. There is so much that is hidden from us, and there is only one who can know it. But there's many people who say they can There there is an increase and rise today in the use of astrologers, psychics, horoscopes, magic eight balls, not just in the world, but amongst people who claim to be born again. Church family, understand we as believers should have no business with any of it because there is only one who knows the unknown. His name is Jesus Christ. You know him by grace through faith. Not only that, but any ideology that says and claims it has all knowledge and can solve all things, whether it be scientific naturalism. Look, we can, we can give an answer for everything, even those things which, truth be told, we have no idea about. We can give you an answer. Anything that says it can answer anything and everything that is apart from Jesus Christ and his word is a scam. Because there is only one who is sovereign over the Lord of history. There is only one who is the revealer of all mystery. His name is Jesus Christ. And when we understand these truths, church family, it means we will humbly seek his will. There's four responses in this passage. Did you catch it? I mentioned it already. Nebuchadnezzar, he grow, he's afraid and his fear causes him to lash out in anger. We'll call them the charlatans, his staff. They're afraid, and they're living in total despair because there's no way to stop themselves from dying. There's Ariok, who always in times of what seems like chaos and hardship and danger, you've always got somebody. Some people grow angry and lash out. Some people despair and do nothing. And then you've always got the self-serving guy who goes, well, at least I can make a buck. But there's a fourth response. Daniel and his friends see the very real danger that threatens their lives and the lives of those in their community. They see and experience what seems like chaos. They've just realized Daniel's probably only about 17 or 18 years old. And he goes, but I know my God. He is the sovereign Lord of history. What is going on is not a mistake. I am here for such a time as this. I know that my God knows all things and he can intervene and and he is a personal God who who acts faithfully to his people. And what do they do? They humbly seek themselves. Daniel already has the gift according to chapter one. He could go, well, I've got that gift. I'm going to go take care of it. But that's not how Daniel acts. Daniel doesn't walk in pride. He walks in humility. He goes, God, you've given me this gift, but if you don't enable me to use it, it's all for a loss. If you, and how do they seek? They seek through prayer. They seek through prayer. They don't come together and strategize. They don't come together and spitball. Okay, well, what if his dream is this? Okay, well, what if, they come together and they get on their knees and they petition. They say, God, look, we get it. We need unmerited favor. We need unmerited compassion. We don't deserve any of it, but we're your people, and we're seeking to honor you, and we need you to show up, and they pray. And church family, I'll just remind all of us, if we're going to be a people of God that lives in the midst of exile in a chaotic world, we will not do it well if we are not people of prayer. And he doesn't just pray on his own. He goes, this is so big, it can't just be me. I'm going to get the rest of the prayer group. There's a reason we pray corporately, church family. And not only that, it also there's sometimes you're going to have needs in your life, situations you're facing by the sovereign hand of God. You need other people to pray for you on. That's what he went and got the other guys for. You don't just need people praying for you. You need people praying with you. You see them. How do they humbly seek his will? They do it through prayerfulness. They do it in humility. And they do it because, here's the reality, church family, if God is really the sovereign Lord of history, if he really reveals all mysteries, then it means it's imperative that we understand what he's actually doing so that we don't wrap ourselves up in a response or a cause that has nothing to do with what he's actually up to. So that we don't see all this going on and go, well, I'm just going to get angry about it. I feel like you're encroaching on, on my freedom and I'm in danger. I'm going to lash out or, or I'm just going to despair and do nothing. Or, or okay, well... What can I do? How can I navigate through this one? How can I maybe round some edges here? And We've got to know what God is up to. What is his purpose? What is his heart, church family, his purpose? It's clear in Scripture. God is moving and stirring things, seeking the redemption of lost men and women in salvation. And that will culminate... And what has started already the initial coming of his kingdom and will conclude when he returns in the fullness and finality of the coming of his kingdom. Let me give you an example of what I mean. For many of us in this room, as many in this room, you remember our country and you remember the world pre-9-11. You know how much everything changed on a dime. I'd be willing to bet if we were just reminiscing... And this is not, by the way, a a guilty, you know, don't feel guilty here. This is not a gotcha moment. But I'd just be willing to bet most of us, if we're reminiscing, we would probably go, man, world was a much better place and we really enjoyed our country more than before 9-11 than all the chaos that's come after it. Did you know that since 9-11, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ worldwide than in the previous 1500 years combined. What is God up to? God is up, not up to the preservation and protection of whatever geopolitical nation is our favorite or we find ourselves a citizen of. God is up to the movement of His kingdom and bringing men and women, boys and girls, to the saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ because that's what His kingdom all is, is all about. And when His kingdom comes in fullness, you're either in or you're out. And now now is the time to work, now is the time to labor, now is the time to proclaim, this is what God is up to. And as he seeks the redemption of people, he is faithful to every last word to provide, protect, and use his own people who already know him in faith. We've gotta know what he's actually up to. What is he up to in our job? What is he up to in our school? What is he up to in our work? We've gotta humbly seek his will if we wanna know. He will let us know what we need to know, by the way. He won't tell us everything, but he'll let us know what we need to know so that we can be a part of what he's doing in his will so that we can faithfully employ his gifts. Do you notice these guys that didn't just put their head down? God wired them. God knitted them. God put them together for such a time as this, and they took those gifts God gave them, and they used them, and they used them in such a way where God's glory was seen, can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar three years after raiding the temple? Wow, Daniel, your God. Your God is the God of all gods. Your God did something my gods didn't do. I mean, truly, maybe that's lost on us, and I don't know how to present it more shocking. That is a shocking statement from that man. Now he's got more to go, and interestingly enough, God's got more to take him through. Because God's heart's for the nations, even the hearts of wicked kings. But these men employed their gifts. And I'm going to remind all of us in here today, there is a recent, the most recent, uh, every year there's a group that does a Biblical World Use survey of Christians throughout the country. The most recent survey is terrifying. Did you know only a third of Christians, if I'm going to make sure I remember, if I say this wrong, I will correct it next week, Okay. I'm not God, so I can misremember a stat for sure. It's not hard to do. But if I remember correctly, only a third of Christians believe that there is a plan and purpose and meaning for their life. Christians. Can I remind you, church family, brother and sister, old, young, if you are in this room and you have breath, you are made in the image of God. If you are in this room and you have breath, God loves you so greatly, he sent his one and only son to pay the price for you, and you can be in that relationship by grace through faith. And if you're not in that relationship, there's no greater call I can give to you today than to turn from your sin and to respond to him in repentance and faith so that he can be your Lord, your Savior, that you can be seated at the table of the king. And if you've been seated at the table of the king, if you're a brother and sister in this room, you have been handcrafted by God fearfully and wonderfully. You have talents. You have a personality. You have giftings. You have spiritual gifts to use in the church. You have been made and knit. Whether you feel like you are or not is not the question. God's word says you are and he doesn't lie. And you are here for such a time as this. And maybe God will use some of us globally, maybe nationally, but God desires to use all of us locally. How is God desiring to use your situation? How can you seek God's will to employ in wisdom and understanding the gifts God has given you? What is God doing in the circumstances of your life? Oh, that we wouldn't fall into the if-onlys. Well, if only the election results were better. Well, if if only this had never happened. Well, if only I lived in a different day. If only, if only, if only, we are here by the sovereign hand of God for such a time as this. We could be on the verge of absolute disaster or of a new great awakening. And if God is the sovereign Lord of history and he is the one who reveals all mysteries, then church family, this is not the time to sit on the sidelines angry, despairing, and afraid. It is the time to take up his cross daily and live like we are his and made for such a time as this. Now, if we're gonna do that, and this will be the resounding note of close here. If we're gonna do that, We're going to have to be confident of his hope. Biblical hope, by the way, is not, well, I sure, right, like every year, I hope the Rangers win the World Series. That's called wishful thinking. (laughs) Biblical hope is when there is something that is guaranteed coming, no chance of it not happening, it's for sure, but it hadn't happened yet in my present experience. But because of its certainty, it changes everything about how I live and move and breathe now. That's biblical hope. And did you catch, again, I told you, we'll go more in depth on the, on, on the prophecy here in several weeks, but did you catch how it ends? There is a kingdom coming. Oh, it's already started invading this world. And the hearts of every one of us who've come to salvation by grace through faith And the one who saves us is on his way bringing a kingdom that is final, eternal, that obliterates and overwhelms every form of opposition, that is absolutely sure, which is why we know God's word holds true, his will does win, and his kingdom shall stand. And because that is our hope, we don't quit. In 363 AD, Emperor Julian was on the throne of the Roman Empire Though he had said he was a Christian to fit in as a young person, he actually hated God and later on in his life he would convert to paganism and he would begin to turn society back hostile towards, towards Christians. He would exile pastors. Christians were prohibited from teaching literature and philosophy. They were expelled from the army. They were overlooked from, prom- from promotions. And one of his, one of his supporters asked, asked in a mocking way, a Christian in the city of Antioch, Asked him in a mocking way, hey, what's the carpenter's son up to these days? And the Christian said, the maker of the world, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. (laughs) Several days later, news would arrive that Emperor Julian died in battle. And legend has it, his last words were, you've won, Galilean. Church family, understand today, I don't care what the news says tomorrow, our God is the sovereign Lord of history who alone reveals all mysteries, so we must humbly pursue His will, faithfully employ His gifts, all because we are sure and confident about the hope we have of His kingdom which is coming. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you, every heart in this room, every heart watching online, you know where every one of us are at. Nothing. There are mysteries of our own hearts hidden to us, not to you. So Jesus, as we take some moments to respond, the response may be praise, just like as, as Daniel and his friends heard your answers, their hearts turned to Praise. God, it may be a response where we need to humble ourselves and repent of sin. It may be a response where we need to really examine before you and allow you to expose, are we being faithful to be who you made us to be for such a time as this? There may be some hearts that do not know you. Lord, may they understand you do have a plan and purpose for them. And you have given them a choice to make. To repent and trust you as Savior and know you as Lord, or to remain trusting in their own abilities, enslaved forever in their sin. Lord, if there are hearts that are soft in that process today, maybe today be the day they choose you. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name I pray.